I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 35, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 5, pages 1104 to 1115. And if there's time afterward, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. According to Vassert, in 1936, Moscow had issued an order that sure and carefully selected members of the communist youth were to enter seminaries and, after training, receive ordination as priests. Vassert identified the Dominican religious order as being a prime target of communist infiltration. He also confirmed that, as with the CPUSA, the French Communist Party took its orders directly from Moscow. Max Badact, codenamed Marshall, former secretary of the International Workers' Order, CPUSA functionary, and and a Soviet courier, said that the Soviets viewed the Roman Catholic Church as a formidable opponent because of its ideological unity and its organizational centralization. If we revolutionists have not already learned these lessons in our experience, we could learn the value of ideological unity and organizational centralization from the Catholic Church, Badakt concluded. At the 1953 hearings of the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee and House Committee on Un-American Activities, Gitlow, along with a host of ex-communists, including Manning Johnson, Leonard Patterson, Joseph Kornfeder, Paul Crouch, Carl Prussian and Albert Vassett gave sworn testimony on the progress of Stalin's program of infiltration and colonization of churches and synagogues in the U.S. and abroad. Joseph Kornfeder, alias Joseph Zak, a Slovak, joined the Communist Party in 1919 and trained at the Lenin School of Political Warfare in Moscow from 1927 to 1930. He rose rapidly in the ranks of communist apparatus until 1934 when he left the party over dispute concerning Trotsky deviations. He testified that there were an estimated 600 secret party members among the American clergy and between 2,000 to 3,000 clerical fellow travelers who followed the Red Star to the east. He made the point that the Soviets often advised certain agents not to join the party. Whether or not one was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party was not as important as one's ability to follow orders, promote communist objectives, or become involved in Soviet front organizations. Mr. Manning Johnson, a former official of the CPUSA and leader in the National Negro Congress, stated that he was assigned by the Soviets to infiltrate black churches, especially those in the Bible Belt. In his testimony before the House of Un-American Activities in July 1953 in New York City, Johnson stated, In the early 1930s, the communists instructed thousands of their members to rejoin their ancestral religious groups and to operate in cells designed to take control of churches for communist purposes. Once the tactic of infiltration of religious organizations was set by the Kremlin, the actual mechanics of implementing the new line 
was a question of following the general experiences of the living church movement in Russia, where the communists discovered that the destruction of religion could proceed much faster through infiltration of the church by communist agents operating within the church itself. The communist leadership in the United States realized that the infiltration tactic in this country would have to adapt itself to American conditions and religious makeup peculiar to this country. In the earliest stages, it was detrimental that with only small forces available, it could be, would be necessary to concentrate communist agents in the seminaries. The practical conclusion drawn by the Red Leaders was that these institutions would make it possible for a small communist minority to influence the ideology of future clergymen in the paths conducive to communist purposes. Johnson testified that the Soviet objective with regard to U.S. religious institutions in the United States was twofold. One, to diminish the church's effective opposition to communism, and two, to direct clerical thinking away from spiritual ends and redirect them toward the temporal and the political, that is, to emphasize the preaching of the so-called social gospel. Later in his testimony, Johnson stated, this policy was successful beyond even communist expectations. Johnson identified the prominent Methodist minister, Dr. Harry F. Ward, professor of Christian ethics at Union Theological Seminary, as the chief architect for communist infiltration and subversion in the religious field in the United States. Reverend Ward and the Social Gospel Movement. The the London-born Ward was ordained a Methodist minister at turn of the century. In 1907, John D. Rockefeller gave money to Ward to establish the Methodist Federation for Social Action Social Services to bring the social gospel to Protestant ministers. Ward was also instrumental in the creation of the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America, FCC, the forerunner of the World Council of Churches, 1948, and the National Council of Churches, 1950. Indoctrinated with a spirit of political radicalism and revolutionary zeal for the social gospel of Christ, Ward made a number of visits to Moscow, though apparently not to any Soviet gulags. He became convinced that communism was the fulfillment of the ethics of Jesus Christ. Ward was also a steady contributor to columns of The Daily Worker, where Louis Boudens was managing editor. Ward was associated with at least 60 communist fronts, including the American League Against War and Fascism, which he chaired, and he played an active role in the Civil Rights Congress the legal arm of the American Communist Movement. He also served as chairman of the American Civil Liberties Union. Ward, along with Episcopalian Minister William Spotford, Jr., remained loyal to the League and followed communist directives slavishly to the bitter end. During the, 35, during the 25 years that Ward taught at the Union Theological Seminary, he was a major recruiter for the CPUSA, and for communist front organizations 
almost every CPUSA defector had a story to tell about the Red Reverend, including Elizabeth Bentley, perhaps the most well-placed and important of all communist defectors. Bentley told of a meeting in the spring of 1935 that she had with Edwin, a student at the Union Theological Seminary, who was nearing ordination. Edwin told her, the old Christianity is dead, Elizabeth. I am convinced that communism is the Christianity of the future, that I, as a potential Christian minister, must per se be a communist even though it will be a very hard life. When Bentley asked him if he had discussed the issue with anyone at the seminary, Edmund replied cheerfully, Yes, I've talked to Dr. Harry Ward about the question of my joining the Communist Party. He's not a member, as you know, but he told me that I should follow the dictates of my own conscience. In fact, he indicated that my my membership would make absolutely no difference in my being ordained. Bentley said, Edwin paused for a moment, then looked up and said, you know, it's funny, but I wouldn't swear he approved the step I am taking. Bentley affirmed that Ward was one of the big shots in the American League against war and fascism, and that with a few exceptions, the whole staff of the League was communist. Manning Johnson testified that communist professors like Ward were planted in seminaries where they organized cell groups. He said that church publications were even easier to subvert. In her testimony, Bentley identified the Protestant as a communist-controlled entity. The Protestant was founded in December 1938 with Ken Leslie as editor. It was financed by wealthy American Jews. Leslie, Leslie was supposed to be, have convinced these Jews that an American anti-Jewish program was in the making. The Protestant was militantly anti-Catholic and pro-Jew. The publication attacked Franco-Spain, denounced anti-Semitism, hailed the peace of Stalin's Red Army, and claimed communism was based on Christ's basic principles. Historically, Protestants and Jews have viewed the Roman Catholic Church as a common enemy. They also shared the common bonds of international jury, international Freemasonry. The communists were able to exploit this hatred and fear of the church for their own ends. The Unitarian Church, which claims neither creed nor dogma nor literary nor liturgy nor moral standards, was highly favored by the Soviets as a religious role model. Its official publication, the Christian Register, was known as a Beacon Street edition of the Daily Worker. As for the Jews, the sixth floor of the Communist Party headquarters at 35 East 12th Street, New York City, held the publication offices of the Communist Yiddish newspaper, The Morning Freiheit, and the Jewish Commission. At, as might be expected, the daily worker seized with hatred for religion in general and the Roman Church in particular, even though Catholics and former Catholics make, made up the bulk of membership in the CPUSA. Protestants and Jews generally quit practicing their faith after joining the Communist Party. 
but Catholics held on to theirs, at least for appearance sake. From the 1930s to the 1950s, Roman Catholics played prominent roles in the labor and trade unions, so it is not surprising that they were primary targets of Soviet recruitment. As more and more of the unpleasant revelations came to the fore at the House and Senate hearings on Soviet infiltration and subversion of U.S. churches and sects during the 1950s, pressure mounted from the establishment and powerful foundations to bring the sessions to an end. Amid charges that the U.S. Congress was violating the so-called separation of church and state, the House hearings on communist infiltration of organized religion in the United States were shut down. Belladad on communist infiltration. After their debriefings by the FBI and appearances at public and closed-door congressional hearings, a number of Communist Party defectors took their stories directly to the American people. Belladad was among these brave souls. Born in Italy in 1904 into a Catholic family of nine children, Maria Assunta Isabella Vissona joined her immigrant family in the United States six years later. Despite the language barrier, she became an excellent and highly motivated student. After graduation from high school, she attended Hunter College, where, like Elizabeth Bentley, her exceptional talents attracted the attention of Commons professors who served as talent spotters for the CP, for CPUSA and Soviet GPU and NKVD recruiters. She then went on to New York University School of Law, after which she became an active member of the CPUSA. In her autobiography, School of Darkness, Bella Dodd describes her total absorption by the party to the exclusion of any meaningful personal and family life and a 21-year rise up the CPUSA ladder from legal counsel specializing in labor matters to a political powerhouse in the Soviet-controlled East Coast apparatus. She became the head of the New York State Teachers Union and a specialist in the infiltration and control of various educational-related organizations. She was also active in women's groups such as the Congress of American Women and numerous communist peace fronts. Her fall from grace and expulsion from the Communist Party in the early 1960s eventually led her to the doorstep of Bishop Fulton J. Sheen in New York and a return to the Catholic faith. During this time period, Dr. Dodd was subpoenaed for Senate committee hearings regarding areas in which she had particular expertise, comments infiltration of labor unions and educational institutions. Her testimony was always concise, direct, and truthful. Dodd also embarked on a series of private lecture tours for Catholic audiences in which Dodd spoke of the infiltration of churches by Soviet agents and communist fellow travelers. From the testimony of Dodd and other former members of the CPUSA and former Soviet intelligence agents working in the U.S., we know that both Lenin and Stalin invested the majority of their espionage talent, time, and finances in the infiltration and subversion of trade unions. The labor movement, key government posts, 
think tanks and foundations, industrial and military installations, local, state, and national political parties, and other secular American institutions. This does not mean, however, that the Soviets were any less successful in smaller-scale projects they undertook, including the subversion of religious institutions, including the Roman Catholic Church. Unfortunately, while there appears to be no dearth of evidence on the successful penetration of Protestant seminaries, churches and sects in the U.S. by the Soviets from the 1930s onward, we have no comparable record of the common infiltration of the Catholic Church, including Catholic seminaries and churches and its hierarchical bureaucracy. However, to suggest, as some skeptics have, that since Catholic seminaries and houses of religious formation are relatively closed society, they are immune from communist subversion, is to ignore the facts before us. After all, Soviet master spy Richard Sorga successfully penetrated the highest levels of Japanese society and government, which were believed to be impenetrable by Western intelligence. Certainly, there were serious obstacles to infiltrating Catholic seminaries from the 1930s to the 1950s that were not present in the case of their Protestant counterparts, such as the requirement of celibacy and systematic betting and close monitoring by their superiors. The attrition rate among these communist and socialist radicals who were who volunteered or were pressured into these assignments must have been very high. In his autobiography, and the well-known historian Will Durant confesses that after graduation from high school in 1907, he got caught up in a flight of socialist euphoria and decided to infiltrate the priesthood in order to work from within to lead the Catholic Church in the United States to cooperation and with the socialist movement. His experiment lasted for three years until a bad conscience got the better of him, and he left Seton Hall in New Jersey for a career in journalism, and a beautiful girl named Ariel, who became his wife. Despite the hardships involved, however, some Soviet agents must have made it through to ordination. The key to their future success would lie in avoiding parish work and securing a desk job in a chancery or with the National Catholic Welfare Conference. The latter would provide the agent with an, un with an opportunity for advancement up the bureaucratic ladder with a minimum of intrusion of religion to a possible to a position of power and influence in M Church. With these wholesale relaxation with the wholesale relaxation of standards of admission to Catholic seminaries and the precipitous decline in discipline and morals of seminarians and ordained clergy that marked the Vatican II Revolution and the establishment of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, U.S. Catholic Conference in Washington, D.C. in 1966 at the height of the Cold War. The doors were open to subversion on an even greater scale. As the, C as the NCCB slash USCC with a well-placed Soviet agent wearing a Roman collar would be capable of inflicting 
maximum damage to Catholic Church both in the U.S. and in Rome. The Russian State Church, a model of communist subversion. The history of the 70-year-old Soviet campaign against the Russian State Church offers many invaluable lessons on how national centralized church bureaucracies can be completely subverted and brought under communist control. Details of how the Soviets brought the Russian state church and its hierarchy of clergy to heal are contained in The Sword and the Shield by Cambridge historian Christopher Andrew and Vasily N. Matorkin a former KGB officer who defected to Britain in 1992. When the Russian state church separated from Rome in the Great Schism of 1054, the Eastern Church trailed, traded the authority of the Vicar of Christ for subservience to the state, first the Tsars and later Lenin and Stalin and their heirs. The Russian people, therefore, were no stranger to mixing religion and politics. After the, 19, after the October 1917 revolution, Lenin brutally murdered and suppressed the Russian state clergy, plundered and destroyed churches, monasteries, and schools, and sent thousands of priests to forced labor camps. By the time Stalin took power, the schismatic church had been brought to its knees. When Stalin eventually permitted the reopening of churches, seminaries, and schools, it was with the knowledge that the entire bureaucratic structure of the church, its hierarchy, and its seminaries were under total communist control. With the entry of the Soviet Union into the Second World War in 1941, Stalin was forced to enlist the assistance of the Russian state hierarchy in rallying the Russian people in the battle to save Mother Russia. However, Stalin did not entirely relinquish his stronghold on the Russian state church. According to Andrew and Marokum, in the early 1940s, Stalin ordered his secret intelligence service to create a new department known as the Council for Religious Affairs, which was, placed, which was used to place NKBG agents in top echelons of the state church. In 1943, Stalin permitted the formal re-establishment of the Moscow Patriarchate under the leadership of Patriarch Alexei I and his assistant Metropolitan Nikolai, both were Soviet agents. In the post-war years, Stalin permitted the Russian state church a short respite. At the same time, he brutally attacked the hierarchy and clergy of the Uniate Roman Catholic Church in the, of the Ukraine, the largest of the underground churches that the Soviets were unable to eliminate, either eliminate or control. In a 10-year reign of terror, the Soviet government murdered and deported to the gulags of Siberia thousands of Uniate clergy and faithful who refused to join the Church of the Regime, including 10 of its 11 bishops. The truce, however, between the Soviet state and the Russian state church was illusory. The Russian hierarchy was unable to wrest itself from Soviet control and manipulation. The degree to which the prelates remained subservient to the Soviet taskmasters become, became obvious to all when, as 
when in 1955, two years after Stalin's death, Patriarch Alesky I publicly declared that the Russian state church totally supports his government's peaceful foreign policy and that communist ideology corresponds to the Christian ideals which the church preaches. As the Cold War heated up, so did communism's worldwide campaign against organized religion. The KGB redoubled its efforts to divide, demoralize, and discredit religious institutions by the placement of its agents in positions of authority within the Christian churches and by the creation of numerous religious and peace fronts under the direct control of Moscow. Between 1961 and 1962, the KGB infiltrated reliable agents into high-level positions of the Moscow Patriarchate, the Roman Catholic Diocese, the Armenian Gregorian Church, and other religious groups in the Soviet Union to the extent that it was in a position to remove all remaining reactionaries from their church as church or secular post. Top of the list of Protestant sects to be arbitrarily put down were the Reformed Adventists, Reformed Baptists, Pentecostalists, and Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1961, as Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev was continuing to reign in dissident clergy and shutting down monasteries, churches, and schools throughout the country, the KGB gave permission for the Russian state church to join the World Council of Churches. The price tag was high. The KGB appointed all the Russian delegates, interpreters, and staff members to the WCC. Daily reports on all WCC business were sent to the Soviet Council for Religious Affairs, still under the auspices of the Soviet secret police. The appointed task of the Soviet delegation to the WCC ecumenical meetings was to debunk tales of religious persecution behind the Iron Curtain and redirect the organization's members and resources away from the issues touching upon religious persecution to the condemnation of Western imperialism, colonialism, and racism. The Soviet plan to reiterate the statement of Manning Johnson on the Soviet penetration of seminaries and novitiates was successful beyond even communist expectations. The Matokan Matokan files confirm that the KGB used Russian priests to spy on immigrant communities abroad, including the United States, to identify agent recruits and to exploit the Russian state churches' joint religious cultural programs. The KGB developed a three-tiered system for classifying the Russian hierarchy. Category 1 included those patriarchs and metropolitans who were willingly and fully cooperating with the Soviet regime. Category 2 included those who were loyal to the state and agreed to assume 
the correct attitude toward the regime. Category three were those members of the hierarchy who were reluctantly cooperative with the state, but cooperative nevertheless. There was no category four, as the KGB permitted, no active dissident priest to be promoted. As for the rank and file clergy, according to the Russian according to Russian state church leader, Father Dmitry Dudko, 100% of the clergy were forced to cooperate to some extent with the KGB and pass on some sort of information. Otherwise, they would, they would have been deprived of the possibility to work in a parish. Key Russian state church clergy identified as KGB agents include Alexei Sergeyevich, Buyevsky, codename Kuznetsov, lay secretary of the Moscow Patriarchate's Foreign Relations Department, headed by Metropolitan Nikodem Roto. The same office housed another Soviet agent, a monk named Yosef Pustov, whom the KGB sent on various missions to Italy. There was also Nikolai Ivovich Serpitsky, codenamed Vladimir, private secretary and confidant to Metropolitan Nikodem. Then there was Metropolitan Nikodem himself. His KGB codename was Adamant. Nikodem was one of the Russian state church's high flyers, the Soviet equivalent of a Joseph Cardinal Bernadin. Nikodem rapidly rose through the church ranks. A certain indication he had KGB approval as no dissenter from the party line was permitted to advance. In 1960, at the age of 31, he became the youngest bishop in Christendom. The following year, he was put in charge of the Moscow Patriarchate's Foreign Relations Department, where he played an important role in the negotiations leading up to the Russian state church's acceptance into the WCC. In 1964, he was appointed Metropolitan of Leningrad as a lead delegate and later a member of the WCC Central Committee. Nikodem was instrumental in blocking any potential condemnation of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. In November 1975, at a meeting in Canterbury, England, he was elected one of six, one of the six presidents of the WCC. In the West, the person of Metropolitan Nicodem was highly esteemed. Pope John Paul I appeared to be particularly taken by the Russian when Nicodem fell dead from a heart attack during a papal audience with Pope John Paul I. In September 1978, the pontiff hailed the metropolitan's saintliness. Nicodem was no stranger to the Holy See. In August 1962, two months before the opening of the Second Vatican Council, Metropolitan Nicodem, representing the Russian state church and the Soviet state, met Eugene Cardinal Disserant, Dean of the Sacred College of Cardinals, representing the Holy See, and Pope John Paul and Pope John the Twenty-Third, at the Convent of the Little Sisters of the Poor in Borny, Metz, France, to negotiate the terms of what has come to be known as the Pact of Metz, or the Rome-Moscow Pact. 
under the terms of the quasi-secret agreement, the Holy See pledged to refrain from condemnation of communist Marxism at the upcoming Second Vatican Council in return for the presence of two representatives of the Russian State Church at the Council. The specific conditions under which the Soviet regime would permit the Russian State Church representatives to travel to Rome as official observers of the Council was worked out by Bishop Leo Cardinal Johannes Willebrands of the Netherlands and assistant to Jesuit Cardinal Augustine Bay, President of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. According to a report provided by the Bishop Paul Joseph Schmidt of the Diocese of Metz, the decision to invite Russian state church observers to Vatican Council II was made personally by His Holiness John Twenty-Third, with the encouragement of Cardinal Montini, who was counselor to the Patriarch of Venice when he was Archbishop of Milan. Cardinal Tesserant received formal orders to negotiate the accord and to make sure that it would be observed during the council. The reader will note the hidden hand of Montini moving behind the scenes to ensure his instructions to John XXIII were carried out. Despite the fact that the council fathers wanted a full-scale discussion of communism at the council, and many even signed a petition during the council for Pope Paul VI to open the door for debate on communism, the council closed without so much as a peep on communism, although the council fathers managed to condemn racism, nationalism, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism. Agent Adamant and the KGB had done their job well. In addition to identifying Metropolitan Nicodem as a KGB agent, the Mitrokin archives also confirmed Alesky I, Patriarch of Moscow, Patriarch of Moscow, as an agent of influence, and Alesky II as a Soviet KGB agent. On August 28, 2004, the Vatican returned the venerated icon of Our Lady of Kazan to Alesky II and the Russian State Church. It is regrettable, but nevertheless true, that it was the hierarchy of the Russian State Church and not the regular clergy who were most compromised by the financial allurements and promises of advancement made by the KGB. Soviet penetration of the Holy See tucked away in the closing pages of Andrew and Mitrokin's The Sword and Shield is a reference to a meeting held by senior officials of the KGB with representatives of the secret intelligence services of Bulgaria, East Germany, Hungary, and Poland, and other Soviet bloc countries in July 1967 in Budapest. The meeting was chaired by the new head of the KGB, Yuri Vladimirovich Andropov. At the time of his appointment, KGB agents and their co-optees numbered several million. The meeting was called to determine the most effective means of diminishing the power and influence of the Vatican and its capitalist allies, most especially the main adversary, that is, the United States. Of special concern to the Russians were the activities of the Roman 
Catholic Ukrainian United Church, which despite decades of overt persecution, had managed to retain its independence from the Soviet state. And Dropov was reported to be obsessed with the notion that the Holy See was engaged in a major conspiratorial effort to subvert the Soviet Union. The Mitrican papers indicate that on April 4, 1969, two years after the Budapest meeting, KGB chief Andropov ordered his agents to concentrate on penetrating the Vatican, including the Roman Curia and all its departments. Among those entities singled out for special attention were the Congregation for the Eastern Church and the Ruskum and other pontifical colleges training priests for Eastern churches. Active measures approved by Andropov included increased persecution of Catholic Ukrainian Uniates and their hierarchy and priests. Charges of sexual immorality were to be used to discredit the Uniate hierarchy. The KGB was able to recruit three clerics, all of whom had been born in the Soviet Union, to successfully infiltrate the Rusikum and the Gregorian University. The Soviet Secret Service also obtained the assistance of two Lithuanian clergy, one of whom was a bishop codenamed Doktaras. A follow-up report made to KGB Chief Andropov indicated that by February 1975, secret intelligence agents from Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary had secured significant positions in the Vatican bureaucracy. Among religious orders, the Jesuits joined the Dominicans as a primary target of Soviet infiltration. Vatican officials were selected for cultivation by KGB and Soviet bloc agents, including Bishop Agostino, later Cardinal Casaroli, Secretary Roman Correa, and future Secretary of State under Pope John Paul II. Bishop, later Cardinal Johannes Willebrand, President of the Pontifical College for Promoting Christian Unity, Archbishop, later Cardinal Franz Koenig of Austria, an ordinariate of Austria, faithful of Eastern Rite, and Archbishop, later Cardinal Giovanni Benelli, in the office of Secretary of State, who was a competent of Pope Paul VI. The chief characteristics that KGB agents sought out in their lower-level co-optees at the Vatican, especially those connected with the Secretariat of State, were corruption, lack of honesty, and immoral conduct. Throughout the years, there have been stories of exposing Soviet subversives operating out of the Vatican or through other church council, other church channels in Italy. The anonymous millenari in the Shroud of Secrecy tell the tale of a seminarian named Andrea Samonente, Sanomonte, who acted as a spy and courier for the Soviets. Sanomonte approached Don Pasquale Uva, founder of the House of Divine Providence in Bascagli, to apply for admission into the new fraternity. 
by chance compromising materials suggesting Sanomante was not the aspiring priest he pretended to be were found and handed over to the rector of the order. The Italian police were also called into the case. In the meantime, Don Uva sent the young man home. A more thorough investigation of the novice's room by the authorities later produced a day planner that contained secret coded materials of highly classified information regarding the Italian Navy. When the Mitrican dossier on KGB espionage in the Vatican was made public in 1999, church officials offered no comment. This was in contrast to the Italian government, which published a list of politicians, journalists, and other national personalities who were paid agents of the KGB. The Vatican has maintained strict secrecy on the issue of Soviet espionage and subversion against the church, the Humintern and M church. One of the still unanswered and perhaps unanswerable questions that has risen in connection with the communist infiltration of the Catholic Church in the U.S. is whether or not Soviet subversion was a major factor in the rise of homosexuality among Catholic priests and religious, especially after the Second Vatican Council. We know that the Soviet intelligence used homosexuals as full-time agents to compromise important targets who were attracted to their own sex. Quite probably, there were homosexuals among the Soviet agents sent to penetrate Catholic seminaries and houses of religion from the 1930s onward, and that some of these agents rose to high office in Amchurch. Also, insofar as communism was able to help move the Vatican to revolution forward, it can be said to have been a contributing factor in the doctrinal and moral breakdown of Amchurch that permitted the homosexual network to flourish in the church. Anything more specific is difficult to pin down. From the Russian state church experience, it appears that ideological convictions, money, and the promise of advancement proved sufficient inducement to bringing the hierarchy into the Soviet fold and keeping them there. Sexual blackmail, homosexual or otherwise, appears not to have been not to have played a major role in compromising the celibate or widowed Russian state hierarchy. This was probably true of the Soviet infiltration of the Catholic hierarchy and other high level clerical executives at the NCCB slash USCC. Homosexual blackmail may have played a major, may have played a minor role in subverting or compromising American prelates and bureaucratic officials, but ideological convictions, money, and the promise of advancement, no doubt, were more important factors over the long haul. In conclusion, therefore, while the Church's enemies from without, including international communism, contributed to the overall demoralization of the priesthood and religious life in the United States. The main impetus for the pro-homosexual paradigm shift in the church in the second half of the 20th century came from within in the form of expanded hierarchical diocesan religious order homosexual networks that flowed from the Cardinal O'Connor 
Colonel O'Connell and Colonel Spellman legacy and by the election of a homosexual to the chair of Peter. And this is all of my readings right now from the uh, right of sodomy, homosexual and Roman Catholic Church. So I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.